Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach. And I'm Lloyd Maeve Houston. And we're here for, well, it's a bit of a surprise. Lloyd doesn't really know what I'm going to spring on them. Yeah, this is, this. I've just been told this is the wild card episode. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I am, I am ready, I am eager, but currently in the dark. I did give you one little tiny piece of homework. I asked you one question that may have given away the whole show. I said, how did you feel about naming people who are charged in the criminal courts? And I didn't mean political crime or deliberately provocative to gain an attention and an audience crime. I just mean the bog standard stuff that 95% of the court is about. And I thought that might give away what I was going to talk about because I'm going a wee bit true crime today. I mean, look, we're we're two white people on a podcast. Of course, you're going to talk about fucking true crime at some point. I know. I feel like it's it's a part of myself I have to explore. So what did you think of my question? Well, I have conflicting impulses, as perhaps you do as well, right? Which is that as a historian or someone who goes into archives and wants to get as much out of them as possible, the more information, the better to some extent, but only with the proviso that then presumably whoever accesses that information is considerate and ethical in how they deploy it. So, you know, the listeners may or may not be familiar with the sort of the idea of the hundred years rule where, you know, you kind of don't name individuals unless you're sort of a hundred years out from what you can identify as their date of birth under the presumption that they would then be deceased. So, yeah, I would say I am broadly in favour of preserving for the historical record as much information as can be, but in ways that are humane about their implications for these individuals' reputations, I suppose, or identify, but, you know, one, one could anonymize such records. Perhaps. Yeah, I've been thinking about this on and off for a long time, actually, and I go back and forth and... In some ways, I think it's about the material you work with as well. People might want to find their relations appearing as significant historical actors when they are traditionally not those kinds of people. Uh, Of course, you can't predict what relations will like or dislike, but it is something that naming gives a certain power in the record back to people. However, there's then the 100-year rule. And I think... A lot of the true crime industrial complex really doesn't. It just ignores the 100-year rule. 
the 100 second like is the body cold okay yeah let's go exactly and so for this one this particular crime if you want to call it a crime is from 1954 so i decided that's really quite recent in the context of you know familial generations uh, these individuals are almost certainly dead a long time but you know we could still be talking about their kids or knocking around yeah i decided to anonymize the defendants in this case no i mean look as someone who works on among other things the history of like venereal disease sufferers i'm i'm used to it being <laughs> humane to uh, elide certain specific identifying details where necessary no one needs to know Granny had the clap. <laughs> and that she somehow appeared in the paper because she had the clap. Mm. I mean, wow, that's a whole other level of publicity. <laughs> <laughs> and in particular, in this case, in the original documents um, and in the press coverage, the defendants are all named, but the witnesses are anonymized, which is a really unusual thing to do in the Irish court system. And that's to protect their identities because this is such a scandalous crime. And so I thought, well, if the witnesses get to be Mr. O and Mr. B, then why should I give the full name, address, age and occupation of all four people who were charged? You know, it's just not fair. It's just so unequal. And it's in the Irish and the British system, we always name people when they're charged. So rather than waiting for them to be convicted, we put their names out there as a defendant and i think that that's that's not on actually mm. it's just not on <laughs> yes so that's that's my decision thank you for agreeing with me even though i was going to do it anyway <laughs> <laughs> look i mean as as my presence on this podcast attests i'm always happy to sanction your most questionable choices right great i can now turn the pages and all my defense points because i don't need them which is great <laughs> I broadly, I suppose, I just believe that naming the accused is kind of part of the punishment that our system uses. Not every system names the accused. In Germany, people are anonymized when they're charged and even after conviction. So I think our system is kind of using a lot of community sanction to, you know, bring shame and disgrace on people by putting their names in the newspaper because they've appeared in the court. So that is why I've decided to anonymize them, as well as the fact of the 100-year rule. So, you know, when you're watching the film in the cinema or indeed on the DVD slash video and the film censors card comes up to tell you the certification. So in the film legislation, there's actually a, a piece of it that says, if you don't get anything censored, we will, you know, charge you with a crime. So the flip side of, you know, certification is that not certification is a criminal offence. As far as I can tell, nobody was ever charged with breaking the Film Censorship Act, right? However, that doesn't mean they didn't break the act. <laughs> and also that they weren't caught, God love them. <laughs> and yes, a kind of proviso, everything I'm going to talk about, it emerges from the police investigation and the court prosecution. I don't have a lot of sources that come at it from the non-state way at the moment. So just bear that in mind. On the 30th of September 1954, Gore raided the home and workplace of a man I'm going to call William, not his real name. They found 32 films and a large number of other articles, as they call them. 
I suspect that these included visual and written material that the police considered indecent. So probably pornographic photographs, dodgy magazines, filthy publications. And this was the culmination of six weeks of constant surveillance of William. And there was even undercover operations by two detective inspectors. 1954 in Dublin, lads. Yeah, Jesus. Vice squad. (laughs) And it is vice. So we'll talk about the films first. According to the evidence presented in the court, one of the people advertising the film shows of these 32 films described them as specially imported French can-can and striptease. <laughs> French can-can. <laughs> so that, that was the kind of the billing. Unfortunately, we don't know what they were. There's, there's something very quaint about that being the filth. <laughs> like, I feel like in, in, in the mid-1950s, it was possible to get something a lot more explicit on, on celluloid. I mean, yes, there are a couple of surviving hardcore porn movies from the 1930s. So it's not impossible that there was more available. So what they're called, in generally when people talk about these, they're called stag films mm. because they're shown to groups of men in a party setting, like a stag party. Because, I mean, you know, like, who doesn't laugh <laughs> sitting around in a room full of your mates knowing that at least, like, 90% of you are kind of rocking a semi? That's that's definitely a mode of sociability I've always found comfortable and convivial. <laughs> it's a closed world to me, I will admit. I can't... I'm trying to imagine how it works. That's not to yuck anyone's... Like, I I, I, um, am, as you can imagine, (laughs) very much in favour of people kind of, you know, pursuing whatever um, kind of, you know, erotic pleasure they wish. But just the the stag film as a kind of like, yeah, we'll get a bunch of lads together and we'll just crack this on. I've always found slightly... Wouldn't be my scene. And they are mostly very short films now. In the case of the Dublin ones, one of the film exhibitions took an hour and 20 minutes, and that was four separate films. So according to the state's case, some of them were produced in Ireland. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think we just need to pause and think 1954. There are homemade Irish pornos during the rounds. Oh, oh man! What, like, I mean, what what does what 1950s Irish lingerie look like? Yeah, what what's the setting? How did the cops know when they watched the films that some of them were made in Ireland? Ah, that's that's a Mayo arse if ever I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Was it the background scenery? They went, oh my god, that's the Wicklow Mountains. There, I mean, there are so many questions. <laughs> It's quite possibly porn might be a strong word for a lot of these films. I think it would definitely be classed erotica now. You know, it's probably just semi-nude women, really. But of course, we don't know because they didn't tell us. And one of the things about the films that this man, William, owned is that they appear to be kind of commonly owned by other people because one of his customers complained after a show but I've already seen those ones so I was trying to work out looking at some of the more famous surviving stag slash porno films of this era and one of them is called Smart Alec and it's from 1951 
It's described as the most widely seen stag film in film history. So that's quite likely to have been in his collection. I think if it's like the bog standard one that everyone has seen, good chance. In the, in the context of Irish pornography, I feel like bog standard becomes a phrase with slightly different meaning. <laughs> Maybe these erotic films were filmed during turf cutting yeah, season. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's got to be something to be said for, you know, the digging and the sweating and... Sorry. <laughs> but let's let's say that definitely there was can-canning going on. Well, there were films made a lot based on the Folie Bergère thing in France. So there's a number of those have survived. So it's, you know, it's going to be one of those kind of films. Who knows what else? They were just kind of saying, like, there's home-produced and then there's foreign films. They're bound to be French-looking because France is the home of smut. So so we don't really know about the films other than what we can imagine, which is good fun. <laughs> and then the other articles, which I think definitely included photographs. One of the customers, a Mr. B, he bought some photographs from William and they were stills from the films that he also saw. That is what some of the photographs were. So William, after his arrest, he's charged with obscene libel, which I don't know. Have you come across obscene libel before? I have. I know it sort of like precedes the, in the UK, it sort of precedes the Obscene Publications Act as the sort of dominant mode under which certain kinds of cultural production were like criminalized. Yeah, it is. It's much older than censorship of publications there's slanderous blasphemous and seditious yes and obscene there are four different main libels so when a person is charged with obscene libel uh, they are charged with distributing material with the intention to deprave and corrupt and as you know like that appears in our censorship acts in the 20th century as well and it's really about the effect on others i think that's the important point it's the potential corrupting effects of the material that you have produced or distributed. Because, of course, William didn't only just have his stash for himself. He wasn't just a collector. He was a distributor. He's showing it to people and he's also renting it out. Men are borrowing films from him for 24 hours for a fee. You see, this begs the question. People have projectors. The people who are renting these films have their own projectors. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, it raises interesting questions about the affluence, or you know, the kind of material conditions of the people who are borrowing his wares. I mean, these cannot be poor people. I mean, also there's the, the necessity for privacy there. Right? You know, just a, you need a, a space. So you need a, a room onto the wall of which you could project something without it being overseen. Curtains for your window. Yeah. <laughs> you're not you're not gonna be managing that like, you know, in your teenage bedroom in your overcrowded tenement. Exactly. So yeah, he is charged with this with this uh, obscene libel, but I don't know why he isn't charged with breaking the the censorship of films act. And under the twenty three act, if he had been charged by that, he could have been levied with a fifty quid fine. And I think the reason they didn't charge him with under this act is because like, that's not really a lot. There's no jail time. 
it's kind of by the standards of breaking the law, it's a small misdemeanor, you know. Um, and obscene libel allows for much harsher sentencing. So I think that's why they chose obscene libel. We have William, the projectionist and the collector of the porn slash erotica. And of course, you'd be wondering, like, how did people know William existed and was running dirty film shows? <laughs> and that's where the circle widens, because there are three other people who are brought in and who kind of bring him punters. Ooh. And they are variously Annie, Jean and Harry. Okay, so women as as well as 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 fellows. Yes, and they are all booksellers. Hey, Annie sells secondhand books, and Jean has two businesses. One of which is the books and the magazines, but that's only kind of a small thing. So these particular booksellers also appear to be uh, dealing in and renting out. A collection of very dodgy publications. <laughs> and if your punter comes in and is willing to pay money to rent dirty pictures, there's a good chance he might also pay money to go watch a dirty movie. The, the sales pitch writes itself. It's like, <laughs> what if you didn't even have to imagine this stuff? <laughs> Do you know they can just show you it now? So one witness went into these booksellers and he paid from two shillings to five shillings to borrow a dirty book. That's only to borrow. Have have we run the sort of in today's money that would... Oh, no, I haven't run that yet. What is it? I mean, I'm not I'm not saying I want to know the, you know, the, the cost of a wank in 1954, but, but we are apparently in a position to kind of calculate that, so... <laughs> so five shillings, according to measuringworth.com, in 1954, ranges from, in British sterling, now we're talking, £7 to £31. Dear Lord. Okay. Yeah. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's, it's a decent amount of money. And one of the things that really intrigued me is one of the types of material that they're borrowing from these people, it's described as typewritten books. Um, so manuscript style books. It's not a proper book in that sense. Um, I suppose it's also a way around um, importation as well, if you're trying to get stuff from the outside. Funny you mentioned importation because in the court case, Annie, the secondhand bookseller, claimed that she got her stash of dirty prints, books and manuscripts from William and that he imported them. A well-connected well man, which again suggests, I suppose, a, a level of largesse on his part to be able to regularly be on the continent or over in at least the UK. Or at least he has a familiarity with the ways that you could dupe the customs. Or mm. So the bookshops in this particular case are the hub where not only do you get the filthy publications, you get to uh, arrange to watch the dirty films. Right, okay. So do we know that they're where they're screened or is it just where you book in? That's the whole thing. It's mad. It's just mad. One witness went to Annie's shop and had been it had been suggested to him that maybe he would like to, you know, as you say, continue his explorations in this field. And uh, so he showed up at, at the given time and he met William in Annie's shop. William owns a car, right? 1954, he owns a car. Oh my God. <laughs> Good money and showing filthy pictures. Wait till you hear how much he charged. So William picks up his punter and drives him to an address in Fibsborough, address not given in the court, maybe because someone lives there and they don't want to mortify them. <laughs> um, and he shows him five films. And this witness paid two pounds, 10 shillings and nine pence. And that includes the films and a lift there and a lift back. I mean, again, do we do we have the the present day? Well, that ranges from seventy two pounds forty five to three hundred and twenty pounds eighty. My lord! Like, say a hundred quid. Yeah, Jesus. No harm to the punters, but surely if one is seeking gratification. When you're getting into that price range, there are more tangible pleasures you could probably be accessing that don't involve getting a lift to, with some fella out to Pipsburg. Possibly facilitate a slightly higher level of privacy. I know. I mean, they are watching this film in the company of William the Projectionist, but also there is at least three other people in the room with you as well. So there's like four men paying Two pounds, ten shillings, nine pence each to watch films for an hour and a bit. It's sort of one thing, the, the anonymity of a f full, you know, cinema auditorium is not the same as a living room or basement or, you know, loft or whatever this is. In one case, in the Harold's Cross, he had more than one location in which he showed his films. Uh, in Harold's Cross, it was a garage. I mean, what was the seating like? I just want to, I have so many questions. Yeah, Jeez, yeah. Cr cracking one out 
on a kitchen chair in the garage. <laughs> yeah. So that man who was driven to Fibsborough then asked William, could he borrow the films himself? And William was like, well, I'm actually going away on my holidays because it's August. So, you know, I'll have to talk to you later. And they swapped phone numbers. They wrote each other's phone number. <laughs> I was just like, lads, did it not occur to you that this might be incriminating? Yeah, this is, this is what we call inculpatory material. <laughs> Extraordinary, just like the, the assurance with which they all believe that because of their unusual interest, that they are all protecting each other all the time. It's just fascinating. Now, someone must have squealed because the police managed to do six weeks of surveillance. So they got a, a rumor or a hint, something. Neighbor or is it, does someone get cold feet or something, you know? Exactly. Um, so yeah, this happened from Annie's shop and from Jean's shop and from Harry's shop. These are the three places. He Basically, William, I don't know how he found the time, on the Friday nights and the Saturday nights, goes to the bookshops, collects the punters, drives them to garages and shows them films and earns money from it. So unfortunately, of course, the, the police do an undercover sting and he also shows said films to two detective inspectors one night in the garage in Harold's Cross. Oh, William. <laughs> oh, William, you poor soul. <laughs> like I said, they're caught, they're arrested and the trial opens. So they're arrested in October 1954 and the trial opens January 1955. Uh, but before that, and the time of their arrest and their initial charge, their names, addresses, ages and everything are all published in the paper for their initial appearances. Because when you appear before the court at all, that's when your name is put out there. Ironically, a class of publication that the Obscene or the Censorship Publications Act was kind of partly intended to like prohibit, right? The, the sort of publishing of salacious criminal cases and divorce proceedings and so on. Exactly. This is this is the sort of scandalous material that apparently was a problem mm. in the newspapers. This like pouring over the court reports to get any hint of what was going on. So when the, the trial rolls around in January 55, there's only three defendants in the court. Annie Jean and Harry William is no longer there. And it turns out William, the man who's blamed and whose everything is attributed to him, really, he's not present because he was declared insane and unfit to plead two weeks earlier. Okay, wow. Now, this is where it gets really horribly dark mm -hmm. and, you know, big content warnings for self-harm, mental illness. Okay, because, I mean, I was going to ask, are, are we talking something that we would still construe as mental illness or are we talking kind of pleading perversion or, you know, erotomania, you know, it, it, so it's not that, it's genuinely not well. No, I mean, the poor man. As a result of the prosecution, do we think, or? Well, this is it. It's difficult to know. The guards claim when they arrest him initially that he seems perfectly fine and he is held in remand and then there are various times when you come before the court it's more than once you kind of go in and out a few times 
And at one of these hearings, this is the the preliminary he hearings in December 1954, they actually show some of the films in court, believe it or not. They cleared the court, Lloyd, you'd be glad to know. Like, yeah, the public were spared. <laughs> but so they're showing some of the films in court as part of the arraignment of these people. And the, the proceedings are interrupted because William had cut his wrist with a piece of glass. Oh, God. Yeah. During the proceeding, he is under more close supervision in Mountjoy, but he actually succeeds in severing an artery some weeks later. And he is then sent to the, the mental hospital in Dublin, which is called Grange Gorman. As a result of this turn of events, they actually impanel a jury specifically to work out, is he fit to plead? You know, is he really sick or is he, as they, they used to say, malingering? Just, just putting it on, really. <sighs> yeah. So it's a formal judicial process that means that he can be exempted from trial, you see. Mm. So they bring in um, medical experts. They bring in a number of doctors. And this is like, this is where it got even fucking madder. It turns out they gave him pentothal, a truth drug. Jesus Christ. The fuck? Yeah, like like CIA interrogation stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? What? I mean. Holy shit. Was all the rest of it not enough? Like, he's trying to take his own life. They describe his demeanor as that he's he's not really communicating. He's not looking at people. He's he seems to be extremely distressed. No, it's, it's it's almost as if he's facing a very public process of shaming and stigmatization for a, you know a relatively benign set of sexual behaviors. <laughs> yeah, who who would have thought that the prospect of your your life as you'd lived it being brought to an end potentially through criminal detention would would potentially negatively impact your mental health? But no, it's malingering, clearly. That is, that is madness. That is so profoundly unethical. Like, so they give this man a drug because he, he's, he seems to be suffering from delusions, right? As in their examination of him before the drug was that he might have delusions. So in order to prove that these delusions were real rather than made up, they give him a truth drug. I, do, I don't understand this either it's, this is a whole s sphere of medical history that yeah like no nothing clarifies whether someone is undergoing a state of psychosis like giving them a psychoactive substance <laughs> that's that's clearly how you you clarify that in their opinion he was yes properly sick like his delusions were the same under the drug as they are not taking the drug I mean, in my limited understanding of sort of in pencil, it's principally kind of like disinhibiting, and the idea is that it would make it impossible to kind of keep your story straight. But yeah, I mean, well, thank God the Irish state went to such lengths to yes to make sure that this man was definitely not fit to plead, and it was it's a like it's reported extensively in the papers, not just that he's been given the drug, but the sort of manifestations of his illness. Um, he said he was, he seems to have been holding conversations and seeing a man who died in an accident where he was trying to help him and he didn't succeed in helping him. And he seems to have been tortured by 
his failure. He believed he was responsible for the death of a colleague, even though he wasn't. It's also like, I, I mean, I, I understand that obviously someone's, like, I understand that legally, you know, it's like the mental state of a, of someone facing prosecution is obviously important and so on. But like, I really don't understand how any of this pertains to him screening. Like, it, it's... I, I, and also why any of this has to be in the paper in such great detail. So the doctors did think that he was too sick and they weren't really sure what was wrong with him. They were like, oh, well, you know, it could be a brain tumor, but we don't know. So like, but it is kind of striking that he was absolutely fine until maybe a month or two into this court proceeding. And he, he collapsed. I mean, he he had a complete breakdown. I mean, that's why I didn't want to name him either. It was just like the, I think that the publicity and the, as you say, the public disgrace of being in court like that, I think that that may have had as at least a contributory factor to what happened to the poor man, right? So the other three, Annie, Jean and Harry are all tried together. But because William isn't there, he doesn't have any legal representation or anything he kind of becomes like the person everyone gets to blame for the problem. Now, it is true, he's the man who owns the films, okay? And he's the one who's projecting them. But that doesn't mean that he's, I suppose, the driving moral corrupting agent, right? There's a difference. So the other defendants start to use the language of the court and the state to defend themselves. So Gene says that he was corrupted after watching William's films. And that's why he did what he did. Right. Sure. Adult human being with your own business corrupted by watching a couple of films. And also he didn't make hardly any money out of it. So like it wasn't for financial gain that he did it. So he says. And his lawyer, Gene's lawyer, described William as a dominating personality. Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. And then, you know... To some extent, I nearly don't blame them because they are desperately trying to get out of what must be horrific. Yeah, the, the whole thing is is a mess. But yeah, I mean, it's, as you say, it's very telling how this is an instance of the criminal justice system providing its own kind of odd fusion of like moralistic and psychopathological language to script what it thinks crime is and how it occurs and the ways in which people are sort of press ganged or, or, you know, obliged to sort of avail themselves of that script in order to attempt to protect themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's an efficient defense, but oh, it's gross. So Harry, the state described him as the right hand booking agent for William. And he seems to have been kind of the linchpin really of how William is getting most of the punters. Annie gets in on the whole thing with the dirty books because William came to her and told her the books were being sold in many bookshops in the city. And he represented himself as a man of great influence. Annie is the only one who honestly admits that she was tempted by money. Like, that's okay up to a point, but her legal counsel actually says there was a demon of madness in him, but she didn't know I mean, we're we're fully into like the language of the cinema, <laughs> like depictions of this sort of vice. Now, this is 
it's wild or also this kind of sense of like psychopathology as social contagion right it's his his madness was catching almost he's he is really you know the 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 core of the problem in this court case even though he's not there and it's because he's not there that they are able to do this if he was presenting his own legal defense it would be a much more complicated interplay between him and the other defendants so at the end of the trial they are sentenced they are found guilty and the justice mclaughlin uh, claimed it was a trade carried on by depraved persons apparently as the result of one extremely depraved and perhaps mentally diseased mind that it was very harmful to people who came in contact with those prepared for gain to take part in this nefarious trade again playing the greatest hits right like it's he was waiting to say nefarious for weeks so they are sentenced the men harry and jean they're given two years with hard labor um so that's two years prison the justice points out that he is being deliberately harsh in order to make an example of them and he makes a point of saying i am adding the hard labor so hard labor doesn't seem to have been part of many sentences at this point i, I was going to say it i mean the, well the, the two years with hard labor just through you know my my own sort of training resonates with like it's what wild gets for uh, gross indecency in under the Labuschere amendment it's it does feel like the kind of it's a very 19th century moralistic kind of purgative but annie doesn't get hard labor and her lawyer actually pleads for the sentencing to be deferred as well to allow the justice to have a think and he makes this really uh, impassioned plea that you know she has already suffered enough and he said she has received anonymous letters been jeered at in the streets and there has been no lack of persons ready to hurl stones at her so her appearance in the paper as a trafficker of smut has already had really profound consequences and if she has three children there also yeah suffering the same that the lawyer actually said that so openly was i think it's just testament to the power of the negative publicity and what it can do in a community completely yeah i mean especially one so kind of structured around shaming as as irish kind of public life is like it's your life is over functionally yeah i mean if we want to talk about being cancelled as the way people like to throw it around yeah weirdly annie wasn't given a like you know column in a major tabloid to, to talk about how she's been silenced and no i mean she was very effectively silenced because i can't find out anything about her since or any of them they probably emigrated realistically to escape this what else could you do so she is sentenced to 6 months in prison but no hard labor that's the end of the obscene libel case that re- it did grip the nation it was in every newspaper every national newspaper covered this and it was it seems as far as i can tell until the 90s it's the major prosecution of people for distributing films that are sexy porny dodgy in some way i mean and on a wider question i kind of i did think should i really tell it at all almost like cuz i have a lot of ethical issues with true crime as you know well i i think in this instance 
the the villain here or the kind of the, the thing that we're getting the kind of juice from as it were is the exorbitance of the state's kind of cruelty <laughs> in criminalizing this right it's it's not the sort of and then he held the knife to her throat you know it's it's that that's not the hook here i suppose as much as we i suppose discuss censorship in terms of its small-mindedness or its kind of capacity to to constrain expression and you know kind of reduce life to a sort of monochrome narrowness um this is an example of how no it also just actively can ruin people's lives you know in in a very tangible way and also like part of the reason i wanted to tell it is it seems to suggest that there is the existence of this underground film community of people who are swapping or dealing or trading dirty pictures or uncertified i mean we don't really know what these pictures are but they are certainly subterranean in a very real sense and that these people exist in a kind of a community how long have they been doing this i mean and that there are irish people obviously making erotic film like yeah clearly there is a kind of network of like production and distribution and importation and it's yeah wild and what i really want to know right so they cleared the court to show some films in the preliminary hearings but during the main trial they set up a special room in the Central Criminal Court to show the films, all of them, to the jury, uh, court officials and the witnesses and the defendants. So what I really want to know is, do you think anyone in the room had already seen any of those films? <laughs> Boring. Seen this. <laughs> My God, at, least, at the very least, we find something that is somehow slightly more awkward to imagine as a viewing experience than watching a film in the garage with four other fellas. Anyway, I think we should stop there now because we've gone far enough down the imaginative road. <laughs> Thank you for this. It is it has been quite something, but it it has lived up to its wild card villain. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 